Well, let me begin by reading God's word tonight in 1 Kings chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 24. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makah, the daughter of Abishalom. He walked in all the sins of his fathers, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son became king in his place. So in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign as king of Judah. He reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah, and Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it in the at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. He brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. Now there was war between Asa and Baasha, the king of Israel, all their days. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commander of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all Chinnereth, besides all the land of Naphtali. Then Basha heard of it. When Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and remained in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah, none was exempt, that they carried and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had built. And King Asa built with them Geba, 
of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa and all his might and all that he did in the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come tonight to examine a man and events in his reign that took place nearly 3,000 years ago. And we confess that these names and some of these places are, are unfamiliar to us. We are on a beautiful summer evening and, and the concerns of the immediate historical context seem far removed from us. And yet we know that your word is timeless and that you have a reason tonight why we would study this portion of your word. So teach us, we pray. Bless us as we come now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we come to the reign of two men, Abijam and Asa. And these two kings are kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. That is, they are in the line of David and they are inheritors of God's covenant with David. First man, the first king that the text brings before us is this Abijam. Abijam, he is king over Judah after Rehoboam. And we learn first of his reign in verse 2. His reign was three years Now, that's to us kind of boring. We read our Old Testament and we think three years, okay, three years, five years, 50 years. What's the difference? Well, uh, it can speak to the instability. Uh, A three-year reign can be a a very short reign is is difficulty. It's trouble. Think of how much our nation goes through just about every four years, not even, through all the turmoil of our elections and and how tensions build and so forth internally in the nation. Well, when you have a short reign like that, it speaks of a a difficult time, perhaps, in the nation of Judah. His reign was only three years. His mother was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. She is likely uh, related to Absalom and is descended from him. And she is a, what, what shall we say, a piece of work. Um, she is uh, significant, apparently. She is a woman to be reckoned with and not in a good, godly, God-fearing way. We learn not only of her in verse 2, that she was Abijam's mother, but we learn that Asa had to deal with her as well. Now, it's, it's a little confusing. I just want to address this because I was confused by it. Verse 10, Makkah is also called Asa's mother. So, so what gives? Uh, well, uh, I don't know, except likely, as she's called the queen mother a little bit later in the text, it's likely that Makkah was Asa's grandmother. And she was 
uh, as the mother of Abijam, she was at, she gained such influence, such power, such sway that when Asa comes to the throne, she is an evil influence and force to be dealt with. So uh, Abijam has as his mother one Makah, the daughter of Absalom, uh, rather the daughter of Abishalom. So his reign was three years. His mother was Makkah. Verse 3 tells us, though, most importantly about his heart. And you notice in the whole passage, there's an emphasis on the heart. And sometimes in the Old Testament, we tend to think, oh, no, it's all about law. It's all about numbers. No, it's about the heart. It's about the heart from the very beginning. And as for Abijam's heart, his heart was a rotten heart. He walked, verse 3, in the sins of his father. And his father, Rehoboam, was notable for his sins. Abijam's heart, verse 3, was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. He walked in all the sins of his father before him. So his heart, of the heart of Abijam, was an evil heart. Fourthly, we learn in the few verses that describe this king of Judah, we learn of his David. Now it's interesting, more space, more text is given to his father, that is his, um, it would be his great, well, I'm, I'm lost in, in what, how many, how far we are down the line, but, but he is, he's a descendant of David, and more text and more time is given to David than it is to Abijam, just about. David's heart was right, verse 5, in the sight of the Lord. And the very reason that God preserved and kept Abijam and watched over him was, in fact, not because of Abijam, but because of David and God's covenant love to David. And it's very interesting in verses 4 and 5 that we're reminded that God had covenanted, verse 4, that he would give According to 2 Samuel verse seven, chapter 7, he would give David a descendant to sit on his throne. So we're seeing here in the rise and fall of the various kings of Israel and Judah, again, the covenant faithfulness of God being fleshed out. Abijam is a rotten character, but God is faithful even when we are faithless like Abijam. And David, as for David... David is lifted up as being right in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn aside, verse 5, anything the Lord commanded him all the days of his life. Wow. Um, There's another encouragement. Isn't it kind as we witness how God judges his servants? That when God judges his servants who trust in him, that he looks over a myriad of their sins and their faults and brings to the front, this is grace, you talk about grace, God brings to the forefront what was good in David's life. And, and David, for his flaws, for his failures, he was sincerely devoted to the Lord and earnestly sought to please the Lord, even though we know in our study of First and Second Samuel that David failed numerous times, and not only in the incident with, with Bathsheba, But it is 
interesting and noteworthy that the passage that the Holy Spirit does tell us that though David was did what was right in the sight of the Lord, it does note the incident in which he killed, murdered Bathsheba's husband Uriah and committed adultery with, with Bathsheba. And so it, it's, it's very helpful that the text of the scriptures is not sweeping over the sin in David's life. Isn't that interesting? Um, that when we hear of David as the servant of the Lord, when we turn hear of the righteousness of David, or when David in the Psalms uh, says to God, for I have walked in my integrity, and we're tempted to say, um, well, no, he's being sincere, and the scriptures are not doing a wink and a nod. The scriptures are bold and out, uh, are straightforward up front about the sin of David. And so he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah the Hittite, and it's right there in the text. And that is, that is so encouraging. Um, when people tend, you know, you'll hear someone who's cynical say, well, all Christians are hypocrites. Well, no, they're not all hypocrites. Um, none of us live up to the standard we wish, but not all are hypocrites. But even if they want to say that Christians are hip- hypocrites, here's an example where the scripture maintains its integrity and where it does not cover over the heinous sin of David. But he's, that sin is actually remembered, not as a judgment upon David, but just so that uh, there is integrity to the word of God and to the to the character of God, of course. So we've learned of Abijam, his reign, his mother, his heart, and his father, David. God is being faithful to his people on account of his covenant with David. Next, we move in verse 10 to King Asa. Abijam dies after only three years. He is given the honor of being buried in the city of David, And Asa, verse 8, his son becomes king in his place. Now, this is in the 20th year of Jeroboam. Now, why is that interesting? Well, it helps us from a historical record, keep track of dates and so forth. But think of it. Jeroboam, king, evil king Jeroboam in the north, has been at this for 20 years. He's a political expert. He has his... He has his administration in place. He knows how to rule. He knows how to fight by this point. And Asa is young and he is green and he is vulnerable. And yet God is faithful to Asa. God is merciful to Asa. And Asa reigns, in verse 10, for 41 years in Jerusalem. That's a gift. That's a gift to the people of God. Because the way it tends to be in ancient times is whenever there was a transfer of power from one, from father king to son king, usually people die. There's a split in the nation and so forth. Rarely does that handover go peacefully. And so the fact that God in his mercy allows Asa to reign for 41 years is a blessing not only for Asa, but particularly the people of Judah. God is showing his mercy to the people of Judah, again, for David's sake, on account of his covenant with David. So his reign is 41 years, speaks of gracious stability. His mother, or his grandmother, 
Once again, though, we learn in verse 10, his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. Uh-oh. You should be hearing uh, something like the, the Darth Vader theme. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, this is an evil woman, uh, as we'll learn. She is, he is young when he starts out. We don't know exactly how old, but he's young. Uh, he is impressionable. And she has power, and she has position, and she has influence. And she has a plan, and it is not to lead Judah in the ways of, of God. She wants to lead Judah into the ways of the Canaanites, worshiping Asherah and the Baals and the like. And so Asa reigns for 41 years, but he has a big problem, and it's his grandmother, the queen mother. Uh, that's a challenge, and we'll see more about that in a moment. What about his heart? In verses 11 through 14, we learn of his heart. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like his David, his father. He was devoted to the Lord, and that was displayed not merely through his words, Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Oh, Lord, you know I want to be faithful to you. But his heart was revealed in some very difficult action. Very difficult. In verse 12, we learn of how how quickly the nation has descended since David, Solomon, and after Solomon, it's just gone down quickly to the point where within a generation or two, it is now established that there are male cult prostitutes. And as an aside... Uh, Romans 1 just tells us the further a nation descends uh, into wickedness and to a debased, depraved mind, there you'll find homosexuality as the, the key indicator of, of that depravity, key evidence and, and the judgment of God. And, and here we are, and I'm sorry to even mention it, but we, our hearts grieve now, don't they, in this beautiful month of June. And now we have to deal with every June here in at least New England, especially, but here in the United States, evil men and women wanting to make this month all about that which God calls an abomination. And that's the kind of thing that Ace is dealing with. He's a man, young man who loves God, knows the law of God, and yet he, in fear of God, stands up with some, some backbone, and he goes to work, and he tackles some very difficult subjects, and he puts away this, this whole male cult prostitutes. Now, how does that happen? It's, it's not just a few men and women. They're there because that is what a large portion of the populace wants. And so Asa is going upstream against the current and he is standing up for godliness and he has the authority and the power and God stands with him and so he works at first at removing that which is abomination in the sight of God he removes the idols which his fathers had made verse 12 and verse 13 he removes the queen mother wow uh, we have a saying, let's not go there. 
And what we mean is when something is so sensitive, something is so um, has such power, such sway that that if there's this fear that if we go there, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be fallout, there's going to be problems, there's going to be a mess. Asa goes there. He deals with what needs to be dealt with, and what needs to be dealt with is wicked, evil influence, even in his own household. The queen mother, who undoubtedly has, at this point, uh, powerful individuals at her side. She has powerful connections. She has political influence and so forth. There's no way that she rises to this level without all of that accumulated power and influence. And yet Asa, out of fear of God, love for God, he knows that if he is going to lead the nation toward God, he has to remove even his grandmother from her place, from her position. She's fired. And and that's where we can reflect for a moment a lesson here from the text. Isn't it the case that so often our most challenging, most difficult moments of obedience and loyalty to the Lord are when it's our family or closest friends? When we know what has to be done, something needs to be said, something needs to be addressed, however graciously, however tenderly, however carefully, but we know that if, we, if we're going to please the Lord, if there's going to be righteousness maybe in the church, then we need to go there. It takes courage. Asa had great courage. So his reign is 41 years. His, his mother is Maka. His heart is one devoted to the Lord, and it's evident in his zealous action of removing corrupt, abominable worship, removing the queen mother. And we want to model his heart. He's lifted up in the scriptures as as one who did great things for the Lord in most of his reign. But sadly, in verses 15 through 24, we do learn not only of his reign, his mother, his heart, but we learn of his failure his failure. We learn of this failure in more detail in Second Chronicles, and Second Chronicles is a little more explicit in putting a negative um, uh, comment on this, the latter years of Asa's reign. It's, it's kind of sad. It's kind of too bad. You, you, you're thinking, go Asa, and, and he's doing well, and right at the end, somewhere near the end, he, he fails. How does he fail? Well, the situation was that there was war in verse 16 between Asa and Basha. We, we haven't met Basha yet. We're going to learn about him in um, the, the second half of 1 Kings 15 and chapter 16. But Basha is the bad king of Israel, and um, he is trying to undermine Asa and the kingdom of Judah. And he does this by fortifying a, a key position that will um, isolate and basically shut off the kingdom of Judah from any help and from resources. And so Asa is faced with a, a real perplexing 
potentially devastating situation. Uh, Basha not only has his own forces, but he has the king of Aram as well, and the Arameans. And, and we see throughout the Old Testament text that this was a perennial enemy of Israel and Judah, and they're powerful warriors and fighters. And so Asa has a, a, a very fearful prospect of being shut off, of being cut off, and then being attacked and decimated. He doesn't have the, the power and the, the resources of, of Solomon, for example. And so what's he going to do? What is he going to do? And it's very easy for us nearly 3,000 years later to say, well, he should just do what's right and, and pray the Lord. But um, when we are in those very difficult situations in which we are faced with a challenge and a step of obedience or faith or trust will cost us. Um, there's, there's a real wrestling within. Am I going to trust the Lord with what I cannot see? Or am I going to try to piece together with my own resources an answer to this perplexing, overwhelming problem? Well, sadly, Asa falls for what is his failure his failure is pragmatism over faith pragmatism over faith this is we're going to see this time and time again and all of us are going to be guilty of this at one time or another as Christians now pragmatism being practical is not always bad Um, sometimes we can sometimes when we're not being practical that's not godly that's just being a fool um, not walking out into the middle of Route 4 right now is, is pragmatic. It's practical. That's, that's wise. But when the scriptures call us to obey God and trust God in various matters, and instead of calling upon God and praying and seeking the face of God and asking God to do what he has promised to do, instead of trusting God... Instead, and instead relying on our own resources, on our own abilities, on piecing together our own answer. In those instances, we rob God of his glory. We effectively declare that we are atheists, practical atheists. We talk, we sing of God, but we don't really trust him when it really gets down to it. That's when pragmatism is sin. And the church is rife today with pragmatism. It's a constant temptation for me, for you, for us. It's one thing to be wise. It's one thing to be thoughtful. It's another thing when up against the wall to come up with your own man-made solution rather than trust God for something that he has promised to provide. And God had promised to David and God had promised to Asa through a prophet that God would be with him in Second Chronicles. Uh, well, let's turn there for a moment. Second Chronicles chapter sixteen. This is the parallel account of the king of King Asa's reign in Second Chronicles. In the beginning of chapter fifteen, for example, God sent the prophet Azariah. And said to him, verse 2, the Lord is with you when you are with him. 
in other words, God is going to be faithful to Asa because he's a descendant of David. But, but as far as God blessing Asa and strengthening him, that comes with obedience. And if you seek him, he will f- let you find him. And he encourages him, verse 7, be strong and do not lose courage. There's reward for your work. So Asa was a recipient of specific words from the Lord. But when Asa instead trusted in the king of Aram to fight against Basha, which is what he did, he, he sold all the, what he had of the house of God, his own gold, his own silver, sent a bribe in 1 Kings 15. It, it's really, it's not a present, it's a bribe. He just says right out, flat out, the king um, of Aram, Ben-Hadad, um, I've, I've sent you a bribe. Break your covenant with Basha. He tries to buy off Basha's, Basha's um, mercenaries and says, hey, fight for me. Fight against Basha. Asa trusts in a foreign pagan king rather than God. And because of that, God sends a prophet in verse 7 of chapter 16 of 2nd Chronicles 16 verse 7 at that time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand he alludes to a victory that God had given Asa over the Ethiopians in verse 8 In verse 9, he says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. In other words, all Asa had to do was to call upon the Lord, and Asa would have had with him not the Arameans fighting for him, but the hosts of the army of heaven. The prophet says to Asa, you have acted foolishly. Asa, verse 10, was angry with the seer, the prophet, put him in prison and died of a disease in his feet. Asa's failure was pragmatism over faith. Pragmatism meaning trusting in his own resources, his own political resources, his own monetary resources, rather than recognizing his need and calling upon God. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, had a few very helpful practical applications from this. I just want to read just a few comments. He says, Asa, King Asa, was a smooth politician, and his stratagem worked on a practical level, right? He paid the king of uh, Aram, to break his treaty with Basha and to fight against him. It worked. He paid off the Arameans and they fought for him. As pragmatists, says Dale Ralph Davis, we admire that. And that's why we find the Bible so disturbing. It tells us that success is no authentic, success is no authentication of fidelity. Circumstantial success and covenantal failure can exist side by side. Let me say that again. 
circumstantial success and covenantal failure can exist side by side. That's why when we talk about how churches are doing, listen, that's wonderful. If God is bringing people, praise God, that's wonderful. But growth numerically or in expansive ministry is not in and of itself any indicator of a people or a church that is pleasing to God. What matters at the end of the day is faithfulness, obedience, like our Lord Jesus. However, not only is there discour- you know, that kind of uh, warning against pragmatism, Dale Ralph Davis goes on to say that this passage also holds out the possibility of faithfulness. In other words, look at Asa's reign, 41 years, and he was faithful for much of it. Asa, says Davis, is the first king after the division of the kingdom of whom such words were written. It is possible to walk David-like. Purity of worship can be protected and preserved. Times of hope and reform can appear within a history plummeting to disaster. I think that's very practical for the time we're in because these are discouraging days. I mean, we are living in our nation right now when, when this month, the month of June, is designated as a month of celebration almost now as close to Christmas with the rainbow flags. We are in an interesting situation. And we know that that's not only in the culture, but we see in the churches how hard it is to find the word of God and the gospel. And we can become discouraged. Davis says, we can sometimes wonder if the church has not been consigned to victimhood. So bleak are its prospects, so unclear its witness, so alarming the church's apostasies, so trivial its concerns. But then the Lord in his mercy brings something resembling an Asa era, era, era. In other words, there are times in the history of the church, of God's people, when they are bleak days and there's reasons to be discouraged. And yet in the midst of those bleak days, God appoints a faithful man or men and women who stand for him in a generation. And God, when those men and women stand for God, God is holy with them. I'm going to close with this. The absolute most practical thing for our church to do right now is to look and examine ourselves And ask ourselves, do we love the Lord and are we being faithful to him? Because if we are, and if we will, then we can know that he will be with us. He'll stand with us. He'll bless us as he is, how he's blessing us. Modest though it may seem in many people's eyes. So may God grant to us a heart of faithfulness, a heart like Asa, wholly devoted to the Lord. And may God grant he keeps us from the allure and the temptation of pragmatism over faith. Let's pray. So God, that is our prayer.
Grant us a heart wholly devoted to you. Help us to be strong and courageous in this generation. And the decisions where we're, found, we're tested are so often behind the scenes, maybe even in our families, on a personal level, in our schedule, in the little decisions, or seemingly little, but where the, our faithfulness to you is tested. Oh God, find us faithful, find us faithful. Above all else, find us faithful, we pray, for your glory and honor. Amen.